Episode 318, A Primer for Pharma, Looking to Collaborate with Health Systems. From the point of view of Troy Larsgaard, a pharmaceutical category manager at Johns Hopkins. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I heard someone say the other day, practicing medicine without pharmaceuticals is like running to the 10-yard line, putting down the ball, and walking off the field. So it's pretty imperative that providers and pharma know how to work together to get the best outcomes for patients. In this context and in this podcast, when I say, in air quotes, get the best outcomes for patients, I kind of mean it. There's a sweet spot in the middle of, won't let those explicative goes here, pharma reps in the building, and blatant conflicts of interest. I wanted to find out from someone who would know what a great collaborative relationship with a pharma company looks like for a large health system from their point of view. How do two, in general, gigantic bureaucratic organizations find ways to help each other help patients? No one would disagree that finding the best collaborative strategy with a health system is going to depend a lot on how that health system rolls in general. One aspect of how they roll is to take a look at their so-called level of control. This means how centralized decision-making is. For example, on the far one end of the control or lack thereof spectrum, you'll have your more controlled systems of care. These systems have centralized decision-making. Most of them will tell you that this centralization signals a bunch of things, like, for example, a commitment to total care of patients. More control can mean that patients can have confidence if they walk in. There's a system of care that is standardized across all the sites of care, and any drugs prescribed, for example, not only have been FDA-approved, but also vetted at the health system level. They've gone through some rigorous evidence-based decision-making. Today, I'm talking with Troy Larsgaard, who is the category manager of pharmaceuticals at Johns Hopkins Medicine. He held a similar role at Intermountain for a number of years also. As part of his role, Troy has sat on and sits on P&T committees, pharmacy and therapeutic committees, as a non-voting member. Basically, Troy is the guy that drug companies want to meet with. Here's a point that Troy Larsgaard makes during our conversation that I found really enlightening. And I guess this could pertain to either a more open or closed health system. It would just happen at a differing scale. Some suppliers, pharma companies, have a, in air quotes, boots on the ground strategy for large health systems. Lots of representatives running around who don't necessarily have a strategic framework to coordinate their efforts. From a health system perspective, this is what Troy considers not a strategic approach. As Troy says, all things being equal, he likes to work with companies who meet him where he's at and who understand the needs of his organization. In this conversation, I paid particular note to the ways that pharma companies who are really good at crafting their collaborative strategic approach get a leg up over competitors who cling to a more transactional, maybe legacy pharma approach. Point of note, 
while this whole conversation is technically about pharma company collaborations, everything that we talk about today is almost wholesale applicable to others looking to work with health systems like medical device manufacturers, purveyors of digital health technologies, et cetera. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Troy Larsgaard, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Now, you said something that I thought was interesting. You want to have the pharmacists working at the top of their license within the health system. So, you know, one thing that takes up a lot of time, as we all know, during the middle of a pandemic when we're on Zoom eight hours a day, is that meetings take up a lot of time. So you said, you know, a pharmacist who's always meeting with a supplier can't work at the top of their license, you know, because they're so busy meeting with different suppliers as kind of a rationale to trim the supplier list. Is that an accurate inference? Partially, I don't know if it's necessary to trim the supplier list. I mean, that, that, that's part of it as much as there's, there's different engagement models. So as systems become more sophisticated, there's different sizes of drug companies. And so their engagement models could be, you know, boots on the street where they have lots of people that are out meeting with physicians or trying to get appointments versus maybe some who develop a little bit more strategically and might have a core account manager and know how to work with supply chain. We have 400 drug suppliers, for example. And so if you have a single point person, even if you're a large company, versus uh, each brand, each product, an account manager or a sales representative for each brand, because at the end of the day, our drug pricing and cost from a financial perspective rolls up to a single company. And so that kind of gets into just different uh, engagement models that we have with suppliers and that suppliers try to have with health systems. There's a difference between a strategic model and a tactical model. Let me just express what I heard you say as the difference. In a tactical model, let's take that one first. It's like the old school, you know, the pharmaceutical company has a lot of representatives, sales representatives that are running around in an institution. You have a minimum of one per brand. So if a pharmaceutical company has a larger portfolio, you've got sort of like different teams and different people that are all trying to meet with different individuals within the larger health system and they're not necessarily coordinated. On the other side, you've got a core account manager kind of strategic model where you have one individual or a very small team of individuals who's responsible to interface with the health system. Yeah, that's correct. And I've heard the analogy too, like a quarterback. The person we meet with doesn't have to know all the answers, but I mean, even knowing how to navigate you know, organizations, whether it be our organization or um, a drug suppliers organization can be complex as well. So having strategic conversations around definitely certain drugs that might launch or different offerings, it does in a more sophisticated system to have, you know, a single point of contact that can help triage, you know, our needs within the organization's needs and, and really creating a, a true partnership. Where I said is, I think a lot of effort goes into developing drugs and bringing them to market, but sometimes the thought of how to interact with the health system beyond that isn't always thought out. Um, if suppliers set up appropriately, they can transact business, I think, easier. So you said interact with the organization more broadly. You've said navigate the organization. You said triage our needs. It sounds very much like a consultative conversation. It doesn't sound like your typical, stereotypical, you know, like Gen Gary Ross, like, you know, ABC, you walk in with a deck and go through it and talk about the brand right before you talk about the brand. I'm, I'm trying to picture the conversation and it doesn't sound like something that, you know, is a typical sales rep kind of conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of that still exists. I guess the examples I'm providing are, are those who kind of go, go beyond the transactional and the tactical. And we've sat through hundreds or thousands of meetings. So after a while, 
you kind of get um, a feel and a cadence for what the approach is. I guess what I'm trying to describe is those who are trying to take essentially their sales, but to the next level is, is creating an avenue and opportunity you know, for themselves to meet the health system where they're at. Being able to have more pointed conversations you know, is helpful. I'll give you an example. Sometimes, especially as drug companies get larger, they have a brand manager and a certain you know drug they're launching. For those who are only managing their brands, even though they're one company, they operate in different silos, it can make it to be a challenge. So I have some premises that suppliers are essential for the care and outcomes of patients. They have valuable insights and experiences, recommendations that are worth you know exploring. And I assume that they're in the business long term. So th- there's lots of things you know worth you know considering. So through being around for the long haul, in order to transact business business more easily, I think it's important to look at our, our relationship legally because every every purchase has to generally have a, some sort of contract if it's not through you know a wholesaler. And then if we can iterate beyond that. The sales or the new launches or new indications, it's at the end of the day beyond the, the P&T review. It, it comes down to a, you know, a transaction that we have to sign, sign a document. And so to the extent that we can look at a, our relationship with the company, get all the legal things you know, ironed out, I think there's opportunity to be more seamless and you know, from the supplier's perspective, be quicker to market if we can look at how we manage that relationship. Effectively, what you're saying is if a manufacturer supplier walks in and has an existing relationship with you and the health system and kind of an underlying contract or at least some sort of understanding of what the contract should include in it, then when that manufacturer comes out with a new product, it's kind of like, all right, we'll we'll pull up the template because we've already gone through this. Like we know how. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Some are there and some some operate very silent. So it's it, you start from scratch on every new drug, every new launch, which I think is can be an impediment to to, to everyone, quite honestly. And when there's competition, when there's same indication, same efficacy, same outcome, that can also be a deal breaker sometimes um, if, if it's difficult to do business with a supplier based on some operational challenges. Well, this adds sort of another dimension to the term reputational damage, which some companies are quite concerned about and others are not. And how I was contemplating the idea of reputational damage, if a you know company does something and it gets a really bad name for itself, that what that does is it impacts their ability to successfully launch future products because everybody's got a bad taste in their mouth relative to like what happened the last time, you know, like you're not walking into open arms. It sounds like even from a contracting perspective, that has implications. I would agree that that's true. As you have a really good relationship with suppliers, and this is where I think the strategic you know, suppliership management comes in as well as customer relationship management, those who inform early often and are transparent definitely have much more, I guess they save much more face, right? Uh, sometimes it's for understandable reasons. You know, you've emphasized multiple times the importance of having a really good relationship and meeting needs. What does a really good account manager from a supplier organization need to know about you? You know, what questions do they come in and immediately ask or, or that you assume after the first meeting that they know the answer to? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, just like, you know, suppliers, I'm sure they have their, they segment their customers as, as do we, you know, our suppliers. And so with that said, sometimes there, there's business we do that just, uh, it's just, you know, transactional. Those who kind of go above and beyond they understand our business, they understand kind of maybe our patient population. They understand, you know, different sites of care. They're also able to, you know, both offer advice and, and take feedback. So we will have, you know, different strategic objectives that, you know, we might 
be working on. When we have a good relationship with suppliers, those strategic suppliers will will signal what's up and coming, what we're working on. And I think they'll they'll be able to kind of adapt and also mobilize people in their organization to have you know, those strategic conversations. I think suppliers who do a good job from, from my standpoint also, they don't meet just to meet. One of the challenges that we see for new drug launches, as an example, is there's always this kind of point where things can be talked about or can't be talked about. There's certain ways in which we're able to maybe have certain pipeline conversations. Uh, sometimes you enter into a CDA to you know, maybe get some early hints or access to that. As you say, it's important to you to get a bead on pharma goings on. However, it's up to them to position what they have on offer in terms of in terms that coincide with your strategic objectives. That's for them to figure out. But in order for pharma to do this, they have to know what your strategic objectives are. But you're not going to, you know, day one, shaking hands with someone. Hello, I've just met you. I have no idea who you are. You came from a pharmaceutical company. And, you know, in general, I'm not going to say that, like, that gives you instant, (laughs) you know, I'm instantly going to trust anyone who has a name badge from a pharmaceutical company that just showed up at my door. This is a bit more of a long-term commitment, how you're collaborative and working together. It's a build. Yeah, I'd agree very much. No, that's that's a really good point. I mean, I mean, I've established really good relationships with certain companies, but you also realize it's with certain people in those companies. So, as an example, in coming over to Johns Hopkins in the last you know fourteen months, I found myself taking that trust and that relationship I had with definitely a supplier and company, but it, w- it was more than that. It was a relationship with that with that individual. I kind of gave uh, that same trust to the brand new person and it, and it wasn't the same. So I think that, that that's very true. I mean, at the end of the day, we are making evidence-based decisions, uh, but that relationship is, is definitely really important. And we've seen that, you know, with, with COVID, you've seen these kind of unusual relationships, you know, suppliers to suppliers working in ways that haven't before back in March, April, May. I mean, I was probably contacting suppliers in a way that you would typically think of suppliers contacting a health system in terms of you know, certain shortages. And so we've kind of seen that, that forced upon us to, to work and collaborate in ways that maybe I think in the end is going to be good for everyone. Okay. So if we're talking about drugs being on formulary, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different kinds of drugs. <laughs> Obviously, there are inpatient drugs like IE, we use this during the surgery, you know, so the Mm -hmm. the patient barely even knows they got it. And it's probably part of a DRG. It's a drug that the hospital is paying for all by itself. It's not hitting the patient's insurance. Then there's drugs that are going to be used in an infusion center. So they're administered within the hospital, but they're going to hit the patient's own insurance. And then there's also drugs that a doctor says, hey, you should take this product. It's a pill. Go pick it up at your local pharmacy. I'm just going to write you the prescription. And it kind of like doesn't have anything to do with the hospital. If we're talking about being, you know, on formulary in air quotes at the hospital, does the formulary subsume all three of those categories or just some of them? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I definitely think, you know, depending on the health system and just speaking broadly of pharmacy and formularies in general, there's definitely a case that that's built up very robustly at the hospital level. Now, with respect to like an, an ASC or a, a clinic, it's going to depend on a couple of different things based on, you know, how the supplier even comes to market and what their offerings are. But yeah, in sophisticated systems, you will see that also carry over to all the different sites of care. You're, you're seeing that either happen today or, the, or more and more formally control extend to all different sites of care. That could get interesting, I could see. 
Because the other entity that needs to put things on formulary or does put things on formulary is the payers. So let's say that we're talking about some outpatient prescribed something or other. And, you know, they go to a clinic and the doctor writes a prescription for med A because that's the one that the organization has deemed is the best clinically, right? And then the patient goes to the pharmacy and it's not on formulary. Like what happens? How does that get reconciled? There's different ways to do that. So definitely the payer landscape can maybe dictate or or influence how maybe a formulary is looked at. So I, I think a formulary, at least at a high level, you decide on a drug and, and you decide protocols for which that drug will be used and you use that and then you manage to exceptions. So sometimes that, that exception you manage to is if a payer will or won't cover it, then you do have to make a decision to either stick to your formulary and maybe not be paid or to have exceptions you know, for certain drugs for certain patients in certain situations. If I'm a physician, how do I know that this drug is on formulary? Like, is it dictated by the EHR? Like, what does my workflow look like that I am apprised of the formulary products versus the not formulary products? The EHR, and there might be order sets or other other terminology, you know, used to, as you pull that patient and, you know, go through different protocols, it, it'll be in there. There's also... Formulary cadence could be monthly, could be biweekly, whatever the cadence is. There's internal communications as far as you know, drug class reviews that that will go out. An interesting consideration, which you know, maybe another question to ask is, you know, how, how does something get on formulary? I think there's there's basically two approaches. There's kind of the top down and the bottom up approach. And so top down could be a class review, like an internally driven. Could be a class review where you know maybe something was reviewed a year or two years ago. And so it's just up for review based on an internal cadence, or maybe there's a new indication within a class of drugs. I think a bottom-up approach, and this is you know where you know, you know suppliers who do a good job, I think, with health systems, is they know they're not in formulary today, and they're actually able to kind of make a business case. So the simplest example is we buy drug A today. We don't buy drug B, but a supplier says, hey, we have drug B. We know we're not in formulary today, but here's some things you should consider. And so it might not be on our radar today, but if there's an incentive or it could be an indication or, you know, financial incentive to create a market competition, it's, it's a way that we can, you know, look at a, a formula review of an item. I heard two ways that you're communicating to the full organization what drugs are thumbs up and what drugs are thumbs down relative to formulary status. One of them is that you've got order sets And, you know, I'm assuming that we're talking about a more of a controlled environment here, that you even have order sets that people use, which (laughs) I'm going to say may not be a universal assumption. But, you know, if it's an organization that does the order set thing, then you're going to have order sets for different conditions. The on-formulary drugs are going to be part of the order sets for, you know, patients who are diagnosed, you know, who are appropriate for that order set. The other way that you're doing it, it sounds like, is with, you mentioned the term formulary cadence, which I'm assuming means like how often certain drug classes go through formulary review. And when they do go through formulary review, then there's a memo, you know, just like, okay, everybody, like, here's our new list. Yeah. So there'd be that internal communication, which would eventually also go into the EHR. One of the things that we've talked a lot about is pharmacists. Like we've repeated that term a number of different times, like the pharmacists are making the best decisions. And they're taking on board, obviously, clinical decision making, pharmacy and therapeutics, contemplations. But then it's also there's kind of financial component. How are downstream medical costs assessed or are they? So, for example, 
See that some more expensive product is used inpatient, but it prevents downstream costs, which may not have anything to do with the hospital. You know, like it could be an insurance, it's like the payer's super concerned if the patient, once they get out, has a higher chance of having some big adverse event if, if the hospital uses a cheaper drug. I'm asking this because it has been a commonly cited issue that the pharmacy budgets are siloed from the medical budget. So the pharmacy is gets rewards and, and incentives to cut the pharmacy budget. I don't know if I have the best answer at the specific level you're asking, but I do know, you know decisions are made or contemplated frequently about certain drugs or treatments if they, if they reduce patient admissions, as an example. I don't know if that's, that's what you're asking, but that's, that may be a classic example beyond just what do we spend last year on this and what will we spend you know, next year on, on the same drug. You use the term business case. And, you know, if brand A is on formulary, but brand B is trying to get on formulary, they should show up with a really good business case. They do bring this in. I would say sometimes it's very optimistic or they should expect to be a little bit challenged on, on some of their assumptions. So for example, a supplier might come in and say, we have this new drug, it reduces infusion time by, let's say an hour, which obviously you're, you have less staff time. And but what they try to get to in their analysis is you have 10 chairs, reduce it by an hour, and they assume that you have a line of people just waiting to get in. We do see these proposals come in and we do make decisions based off of this. But within these supplier proposals, you know, sometimes I like to you know, challenge the assumptions to see you know, where that benefit really is. Of course, the patient gets an hour of their life back. But I see your point. It's essential that claims pharma companies might make are not, you know, amazing examples of Excel wizardry, but like irrelevant IRL. Yeah, that's correct. All things being equal, if I'm a health system, why am I choosing to work with this pharmaceutical manufacturer slash supplier versus some other one in the same, who maybe has similar products in the same drug class? That's a really good question. I, every drug company has to go through an FDA process. Every drug company has to go through certain standards. And so in a lot of ways, from a sourcing standpoint, you have that advantage knowing that if a drug comes to market, there's a lot of rigor that goes to get that drug to market. But above and beyond that, I think true value to a health system, adaptability, really understanding kind of what our goals and missions are, help us understand kind of how we fit into your business model. Sometimes you might be a more transactional customer to a certain supplier compared to another supplier who might have a you know similar you know, drug or solution. I do think all things being equal, being prepared and challenged to, especially with COVID and other other you know things, is helping us understand who you know your suppliers are to help us understand you know what your constraints are. Be prepared to answer questions such as what does partnership mean to you? Uh, that, that word gets thrown around a lot. One thing we look at a lot when making decisions is, you know, how robust is, is your supply chain? It's one thing to be asked as a health system to try to keep, you know, costs and, and, and care, you know, affordable to patients. As we see drug price increases, we understand no margin, no mission. So you have to be a viable company, but expect to be, you know, challenged from us. Um, how are you working to, like with those price increases, how are you working to reduce costs or improve efficiencies on, on, on your end so that you are a viable partner in the future? So if we've got drugs that are in different places in their life cycle and with different levels of competition, you know, you've got drugs that are like they've got a patent, they're the only game in town. And then you've got drugs that are in crowded classes with a lot of competition. How does the formulary that you create reflect this? Is it considered differently? You know, is being on formula considered differently? Yeah. 
quick visual that I like to give my mind is just imagine a, a pyramid with kind of three different sections. On the bottom, you have your multi-source drugs. So lots of options, lots of competitions, very interchangeable. At the top, you have your sole source drugs. So there might be drugs that are on patent and might have a patent for the next 20 years. And in the middle, I'll just call kind of your limited multi-source vaccines, biosimilars, or maybe good examples, you might have two, three, four, you know, suppliers of that. And so when you look at formulary decisions, sometimes on those sole source drugs, I mean, there's just getting used to kind of what it is, if it's a brand new drug, what indications it, you know, it treats, and, and you're kind of approving that drug by indications. And, and you'll see drugs, uh, sole source drugs that, that will launch with certain indications and have more and more that, that come out. When we think about formulary, and if it's a you know really expensive drug, and there's an, another drug that could treat it just as well, you might look at you know formulary approval, but with you know limitations or carve outs. You know, a really simple example I can give, uh, you know, at least at a high level, is sometimes a drug might come you know in front of formulary, and it's approved, but maybe there's some concerns about pediatric patients, or maybe concerns about BMT bone marrow transplant patients, and so within that kind of formal decision process. There could be an initial acceptance of the drug with certain carve-outs, and then as time goes on, maybe those carve-outs become less of a concern, or, or they might they might stay and remain. And so there's different levels of kind of formula approval I mean, you can go through, or maybe restrictions. Sometimes you put on it because of concerns. In negotiations, what I like to tell suppliers, you know, sometimes in that case, especially if it's a contract opportunity, is we have this opportunity, you know, for approval. You know, here here's the conditions, and especially if they have market share requirements or you know, certain commitments in the contract, um, I'll bring in the, the carve-outs that we've identified, you know, as concerns to put into our, uh, our contract, essentially. Got it. So it's not just like a blanket statement. You're on formulary. It can, it can be. Yeah, there's just different levels of approval. So yeah, best case would be on formulary and 100% of the way, but sometimes there can be um, different carve-outs. And, and I think what that reflects too is, uh, is the rigor behind the PNT committee, right? There's a carve-out usually that could be for a clinical reason or concern or, you know, biosimilars is a great example where early on, and I think a lot of people still do this, is you have, you have new starts. So you approve it, but you're not going to kind of mess with people's you know, current treatment. But um, if a new patient comes in, you can entertain a new drug for a new patient. I'm inferring here that there is also a contracting opportunity inherent in carve-outs. You can use the threat of more carve-outs in contracting negotiations. Yeah, I'd agree. One of the topics that the cool kids mention for some of these newer products that have some pretty big claims potentially to match their big prices is to set up these outcomes-based contracts or what have you. So it's a little bit more of a sophisticated pricing model. What are your thoughts on those, Troy? Outcomes-based contracts sometimes are called risk share. And I like to joke, sometimes it's all risk, no share. I mean, it seems from the the healthcare perspective that these proposals are set forth and, and and that's what it feels like. Now that said, I think they're a, a great, uh, there, there has been successes I've seen. I do think it's a great and emerging and we should continue talking about it. Well, the opportunity with, with that is basically one way to look at these is it, it's saying, we'll sell you this drug. It, it'll have these certain outcomes. If it doesn't, then there's not going to be the financial impact you'd expect if, if, if it were to work you know, as we say it's going to work. That's maybe a little oversimplified, but part of the challenges with these is the time it takes, the buying it takes. A lot of times these contracts want an intense amount of data behind it. 
sometimes within the busy schedules that everyone has, there's, there's like a barrier to entry to even, you know, get them to work sometimes. But that said, I've had multiple presentations on them. I think it's um, definitely something we need to continue to discuss. And I think there's, you know, opportunity with the, with the appropriate on-ramp for these contracts. So Troy, you're on LinkedIn, if anyone would like to connect with you there. I'm on LinkedIn. My name, there's only one of me in the country that I know of, so they can look at my first and last name and they can find me pretty easy. Troy Larsgaard, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks for having me. Nice to be with you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.